Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey folks, Adam here. Before we jump into the podcast, I want to let you know that if you live in New York, I'm going to be performing at the New York Comedy Festival on November 11th at the Gramercy Theater. We're doing a great big Adam Ruins Everything live comedy show featuring two of my writers, Allison Zeidman and Brian Frangi. It's going to be great. If you want to come, get tickets at nycomedyfestival.com or livenation.com. Once again, that's November 11th, Gramercy Theater, New York Comedy Festival. I hope you come out. And now, on to the podcast. Everybody and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. You may also know me as the host of Adam Ruins Everything on True TV, which, reminder, airs every Tuesday night on True TV at 10 p.m. Eastern. Where are my central people at? You know what time you air, 9 p.m. Central. And just as a reminder, that show airs every Tuesday night on True TV at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. And you can find clips and full episodes of the show at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. Now, on this podcast, I talk to researchers, academics, journalists, scientists, experts about the work they do, why it is so fascinating, why you need to know it. We bring people from who you don't get to hear. You don't get to hear them in your daily life. Look, you're walking down the street. You don't get to chat with a scientist. But here on this podcast, you can walk down the street and listen to me chat with a scientist and learn something about their incredible work. So that's what we try to bring to you every show. Today's guest is Brian Nosek. Brian was on the TV episode, Adam Ruin Science, where he talked to us about the reproducibility crisis in science. This is a problem where a lot of those studies that you've heard about in the news or, you know, just like pop culture, oh, this science says this, science says that, a lot of times when they go back to reproduce the study, it doesn't hold up. And this is actually happening a lot more than we might think and certainly more than we would like. So in order to address this problem, Brian started the Reproducibility Project and was the co-founder of the Center for Open Science. He's also a psychology professor at the University of Virginia, and I'm so excited to have him join us today from Virginia. Let's get right to the interview. Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, so can you tell us in a nutshell uh, what the you know reproducibility crisis is <laughs> and should we be worried about it? Yeah, the, the reproducibility crisis is a term that has emerged not because I think something brand new is challenging about science, but rather there's growing awareness of what's challenging about science. And that is that a... A core principle of what makes science science is that when I make a claim and I say this is a scientific claim, it's a finding about the world, it's how something works in the world, that other people get to know the basis of that claim, right? They say, how did you get there? What was the methodology you used? What data did you collect? How did you analyze that data? How did you interpret it? And they may disagree or agree with my conclusion. Uh, And not only do they get to see how I did it, in principle, they should be able to do it themselves and say, okay, if I follow that methodology, if I collect the same kind of data, if I observe similar kinds of events, then I should myself be able to find similar kinds of evidence. That is reproducibility 
and it's what makes scientific claims credible over time. Now, why we are talking about it as a crisis is that the field, in some ways, got has gotten complacent about presuming reproducibility, presuming that the findings that we get and then publish in scientific journals are the findings that are are true. They are reproducible. But we have lost some of the ethic of checking, of following up, of trying to reproduce findings and seeing if the claims hold up. And so why a crisis has emerged, as it were, is that as people started to say, well, we really should follow up and check, What researchers have found across a variety of disciplines is that the findings aren't as reproducible as expected. And so that's been sort of a shock, like, oh, my gosh, we've assumed that this is the case. And lo and behold, there's a problem here. We got to do something about it. Right. And it's so this is, you know, reproducibility is one of the sort of bedrock ways that we know science is accurate. Right. I I think most people have heard of peer review. That was sort of the one, you know, when I was in school that they really told us all about, oh, peer review. That's how science checks itself. But um, there's this other big one, which is reproducing the work of others. And it's just it's a not getting done as often as it should be. And B, when it is done, we're finding that studies that we thought were solid are, are sort of poof wait, they're not reproducing, uh, wait, wait is, this, is this accurate or not? Yeah, exactly. That is the, the core of the issue. And so a lot of the concern has been, why? Like, why, why are we having this struggle? And, wh- uh, and why? <laughs> so let me, let me, <laughs> oh, great that's my question, next question. Why, why, yeah. why is it happening? <laughs> yeah, amazing. It's like I'll put it right to you. Right. Uh, so, the, I mean, the, the simple answer is we don't know completely Uh, But the longer answer is that we have a lot of things that we know can be done better. Uh, So there's a couple of things that are obvious ones. Uh, One is that it's challenging to reproduce findings if you don't know how it is they did it in the first place. Uh. And what has become clear is that our standards for publication, how it is, you know, I do a study in my lab, uh, we write it up for publication, we share it, what is in the paper is not sufficient to reproduce the original findings because we don't explain enough of the methodology. That's in some ways just like people want to read news articles that are interesting, so do scientists. They want to read research articles that are interesting. And oftentimes the guts of the methodology are not so interesting even though they're really important. And so one very mundane challenge is just saying with more detail of how it is we did it, how it is we got those original findings. Just publish the recipe. Yeah, right. Uh, and that that would be a massive improvement of actually sharing that and making the materials available that were actually done to run the study, making the data publicly available that was actually the basis of the claim. All of those would be massive improvements uh, for reproducibility. But it doesn't stop there because another big challenge is that there are certain kinds of findings that are good for me as a researcher, that make it more likely that I can get published. And publishing is the currency of advancement, right? I get my rewards. I get job. I keep my job. I get tenure. I get promoted based on publication. And so striving for publication means in the current incentive culture in science that I'm striving for certain kinds of results, positive Mm -hmm. results better than negative results, right? Finding a relationship between some two things rather than saying, nope, nothing to see there. Uh, Finding a novel result versus just finding something that someone else has has found before. 
finding a nice and clean, tidy story where it all works together is much better than finding things with exceptions and problems and everything else. So a positive, tidy, novel story is the best kind of contribution. But the challenge is, is that research is hard. We're studying things we don't understand. That's why we study them. And so the fact that uh, what's happening, what the fact is, is what happens in the lab is messy, lots of false starts, things that don't quite fit and work. But all my incentives are share a beautiful, clean, tidy story. And so there can be parts of the process along the way, publication bias, where I might leave out findings that aren't quite consistent with my story. Uh, and p-hacking, where I might look at the data in a number of different ways and find the way in which I look at it that's best for publishing to also be the best way to look at it. That's the way I should report it, right? And I might reason myself to, to think that's how it, what I should say. Now, I've heard of, I've heard of p-hacking, um, and let me say what, what I think it is, and you tell me how yeah. far off I am. <laughs> this, is, sure. this, is, this is what my whole career is based on, is, is me repeating <laughs> my dumb-dumb dumb, dumb comedian version. Um, right. But p-hacking p is sort of, uh, like, p is, I believe, the, the, the measure of how significant the result is or how, how certain you can be that the result will hold or, or how likely it is that it, that it uh, uh, arrived at random chance, but you can sort of, it's basically this process where scientists who are trying to get that number up, which will look better and, and bode well for the uh, study getting published, will sort of like nudge the data or, or look at it in different ways or, or you know, uh, sort of apply, you know, look at it through a lens that gets that p-value as high as possible. It, it, and it's just sort of this thing where if you're just trying to make, if you're just trying to like arrange your data in such a way that you get this one number as high as possible, you can do that. You're sort of like overfitting the data to this number. Yeah. Is that so right? You've got, you've got the core idea correct. And so I'll just okay. restate it in other ways of some, some of the nuances. So the p-value is a statistic uh, used for statistical inference. And the core idea is it's a measure of unusualness. If there's no relationship to detect, if this intervention of me trying to see if giving this drug leads to this improvement in health, if there's no effect of the drug, then how likely is it that I observed this difference? That's the p-value. And what you want in showing that there is an effect, right? If I believe there is something here and there's something to detect, this drug is effective, then my p-value should be very low. Uh, and very low means it, this is unlikely to have occurred if there's nothing to detect. So maybe mm -hmm. there is something to detect, right? And then there are conventions. And the conventions in science are that a p-value less than 0.05 means that this was unusual enough to take seriously. It's considered a positive result. And so we should think that maybe we have some evidence that there is uh, a relationship here, that this thing is, is there. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that once you set up a convention, then it becomes a target. So yep. if I need positive results to be publishable, if I believe in the things that I'm studying will produce positive results, then when I'm an analyzing my data, there might be 30 different ways that I could analyze this particular relationship. How, what things do I remove from the analysis? What extra variables do I consider that could be accounting for? How do I transform the, the data? All of those choices have impacts on what the p-value is. And so what I might do is try lots of different ways. 
and even unintentionally start to select the ways that make that p-value smaller and smaller uh, so that it becomes more publishable. And the key, I think, here is that it could be intentional, right? I could just say, I am going to hack and hack and hack at this data until I get a low p-value. But I don't think that happens very often. When it happens, that's a big problem. That's fraud. Uh, But what I think happens more often is that I do it entirely without realizing I'm doing it, right? So when I get into my data, I sort of say, okay, how should I analyze this? Well, okay, I do my initial cut analysis, and it's like, oh, it it isn't quite significant, but oh, maybe I should have looked if this is an effect that only occurs for men and not for women. And so I analyze that way. Oh, wow, that sort of looks a little better. Oh, maybe I should consider whether there are some outliers here that I should address. Oh, it looks even better. Uh, And then so I sort of justify to myself along the way that this is the right way to do it and not realizing that I'm overfitting, that I'm actually taking advantage of chance to get a significant result. Right. And, and so you end up walking down this path where you get you get all the numbers to look right at the end of the day. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your conclusion actually held water. You might have just gotten to a little bit of a fluky result that happens to also look right statistically. Yeah, that is exactly the key challenge, which is if I p-hack the result, if I'm taking advantage of chance to get a low p-value, then the p-value isn't actually diagnostic of unusualness. And so it could be that I'm just playing with noise, and what seems like a signal is really just my, you know, my playing with noise. And so the way in which that contributes to the reproducibility crisis is that I'm putting into my article, I found something here. Here it is, where it actually was just noise, and it's hard to, it's hard to tell because you don't know all of those choices I made along the way. You don't know those alternative paths that I did analyze or I could have analyzed that might have made it look not so robust. And so the lack of transparency of all of that process then means that the published result looks more beautiful than the evidence actually suggested. Wow. And, and that's all through setting up that incentive. It's not it's not like all scientists being hoaxers and twirling their mustaches. It's just, hey, we've set up your number one goal is to get that P value below 0.05. And so, of course, that's what people are going to try to do. I mean, hey, every episode of our TV show has to be 21 minutes long. So I make sure they're all 21 minutes long, regardless of whether or not the, uh, you know, uh, we had more good information that we had to, uh, you know, that we had to leave on the cutting room floor. It's like if you give people a target, they're damn well going to hit it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the and you can sort of get a sense of how often this target is hit when they've done reviews of the published literature of what proportion of studies is the key finding a positive result. It's over 90%. Over 90% of the published results are positive results. That's amazing. Either scientists are perfectly, practically perfectly predicting what's going to happen in the world, uh, or what's in the published literature is just really a very small subset of what's actually being done. Because our uh, our sort of, you know, the version of science you're taught about in school is that the scientist comes up with a hypothesis and they're like, okay, let's test it, right? And then a lot of the time, if that if that's how it works, a lot of the time their hypothesis should be wrong and that should be the right. result of the experiment is that, oh, it turns out that the, my, you know, the thing I suspected was not true and now I know that it, now I know that, you know, that's that's useful information, but that's not being, yeah, that's not showing up in the published literature. Yeah, and in fact, what you just said, I think, is what science, the purpose of science is, is to find out where we're wrong, 
right? Yeah. If we're always correct with science, then we don't actually need to do the experiments. We're, we're always correct. We already know. <laughs> we're predicting with 90% or better probability the, what's going to happen in the studies. Why bother investing all the money in science, right? The reason to do science is because we don't actually know how the world works very well. And so our initial ideas, what we think is going to happen, is going to be wrong, and it's going to be wrong a lot. But the insights that we get for when we're wrong help us to improve our models of the world, our descriptions of how it all works, of what might be true, and looking, oh my gosh, this was so unexpected, that makes me change my entire orientation of that phenomenon. That's really where progress in sciences get made, gets made, right. is it's the slow reduction of uncertainty, the, the, and ideally the rapid identification of errors, of what we th- thought was true that isn't, that can help us revise and improve. So you're known as sort of a, a leader in tackling this problem. Um, how did you become interested in the issue of reproducibility in the first place? I mean, this is not something that, you know, every scientist is walking around foremost in their mind. You have to sort of become a little bit, you know, conscious of it. And, and how did that happen yeah. for you? Yeah, for me, it was in graduate school. I, I was uh, at Yale in the late 90s, and my uh, research methods instructor, Alan Kasdan, uh, had us do some readings of papers from the 1960s and 70s. Bob Rosenthal, who uh, identified the file drawer problem, which is how we don't publish negative results and we do publish positive results. Uh, Tony Greenwald, who wrote this great paper about prejudice against the null hypothesis of people don't like uh, negative results. And a number of other papers that all sort of talked about challenges for uh, getting quality and credibility of evidence. And what was amazing about it was that all of those papers written in the 1960s and 70s, we were reading there in the late 90s and saying these are the the same problems that are happening today. And it just was sort of stunning to sort of see that and say, wait, we've known about this stuff for 40 years, and why why is it still like this? Wow. Uh, And so that sort of, at least for me, just sort of put an onset of, if I really want to do a good job in my research, my, I study uh, implicit bias, thoughts and feelings outside of awareness and control and how they influence judgments of others. If I want to make progress in that, then I have to be attentive in my own work, in my lab's work, to making sure that our research is reproducible, that we don't have these problems of low power and leaving out results that are inconvenient, et cetera. And so the interest really started as a very just a personal Interest. How can I do the best research possible uh, with the resources that I have available? And so you went on to found the Center for Open Science and the Reproducibility Project. Can you talk to us a little bit about that work and and how you're trying to address these problems overall through them? Yeah. So in uh, 2012, uh, Jeff Spees, who was a grad student in my lab, and I started to work on uh, a software tool called the Open Science Framework, uh, which the purpose of it is to help researchers manage their research projects. They can set it up privately uh, to sort of set up projects and post their materials and their data, add their collaborators, and sort of have a private workspace in the cloud so that they'll never lose their own materials, their own data for their own use ever again. And they can register their stuff along the way. Uh, And then if, but what it does is it makes it super easy to make things publicly accessible. So we were working on that as a lab project, and uh, at the same time, uh, we started what became known as the Reproducibility Project for Psychology, 
And this was a crowdsourced effort where we said, everybody's talking about challenges of reproducibility. People are giving anecdotes of having a hard time replicating study X or study Y. Let's get some evidence about whether this is really a challenge in some broad way. Uh, and so we said, well, we can't replicate lots and lots of studies ourselves. So we organized a group project. Anybody in psychology that wanted to get involved uh, could get involved to replicate a sample of studies uh, from the research literature. And we ended up, by the end, having 100 replications of, of different studies uh, from a sample of studies uh, and 270 co-authors contributing to this paper that was published in 2015. Wow. Uh, but the two of those projects, the OSF, the Open Science Framework, and the Reproducibility Project, uh, got some attention in 2012. And then we started talking to different funders, saying that we think that this is important stuff. We care about evidence. Uh, and the uh, Laura and John Arnold Foundation said that we, we want to take a chance on you guys and sort of kickstart uh, so, you know, some broader efforts for advancing reproducibility. And so they gave us a, a starter grant to uh, found the Center for Open Science as a nonprofit and pursue a mission of increasing openness, integrity, and reproducibility of research. And so that started in 2013 and has just been going gangbusters since. Well, and it seems like it's important work because I have here a little more details, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but that 2015 uh, reproducibility project, only 36 out of the 100 replications showed statistically significant results. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the outcome of that paper was uh, uh, surprisingly low for, for many people, uh, rate of reproducibility. And that doesn't provide definitive evidence by any means because it's one study, right? We wouldn't make right. any big claims about any other one study. We can't make uh, dramatic claims about this one. But it certainly provided uh, initial base of evidence that sort of got the field talking and debating. Why is it that it was that low? Uh, was it because uh, the original research was wrong? Was it because the replication team screwed it up uh, and just didn't do a good job? Or is it because that the original study was true and the replication study also was true, but there's some critical difference between them that we didn't see. We don't know what it is that explains why it occurs in one case and not the other. And so that debate and the subsequent investigations that have occurred since uh, 2015 has been super productive uh, for the discipline to try to get a better handle on what are the causes and the consequences of reproducibility and how can we do better uh, in our sharing of data, of our making materials available, of pre-registering our research uh, in advance. Right. So this, so that sort of big first study sort of alerted everyone that there was an issue here that, that needed to be discussed. And now you're sort of moving forward, like trying to build solutions in the scientific community? Yeah, that's right. And and that reproducibility project was for psychology. There have been other efforts uh, in other uh, disciplines, uh, and particularly in the life sciences. Uh, there have been a couple of projects from industrial labs uh, that came uh, before that that found similar challenges for reproducibility. And right now we are finishing up a, a sort of a follow-on reproducibility project in cancer biology that has the very similar sorts of goals. And so that has been a big uh, opportunity to sort of look at what are the challenges. And most of the effort that we have in the organization is thinking about solutions. What can we do to do better uh, to address these reproducibility challenges? 
While I'm here talking to Professor Brian Nosek, we will be back in just a moment, so please stick around. Hey there, folks. I'm writer and performer Dave Holmes, and I host International Waters, where we pair a team of comedians in L.A. against a team of comedians in London in a pop culture trivia battle royale. Comedians like Josie Long. I worry that it makes me seem like I'm 80 years old, but I hurt my knee, and it is just on the mend, and I can't tell you how delightful (laughs) that feels. If I want to walk down some stairs, I just go for it now. (laughs) Michaela Watkins. We have a country where, like... Our leaders actually deny global warming. <laughs> so we are going to have more beachfront property than any other nation. I mean, it's going to shrink our country in half, but it's okay. But that's just more yeah. beach. And many more. Join us every other week on International Waters with me, Dave Holmes. Find it on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to University of Virginia psychology professor Brian Nosek. Now, I know that, uh, you know, as far as the, uh, you know, broader scientific community goes, psychology and, and biology are, you know, on various, you know, I know there's that old soft, hard science hierarchy um, and that, you know, psychology is very soft, biology is a little soft or whatever. I know there are different sorts of sciences. Do you also see these in, hey, is this happening, you know, at the Large Hadron Collider? Is this is this happening in high energy physics as well or... Well, it, it, the high energy physics is a good example to raise because the project that was key for discovering Higgs boson sort of is a model case of doing science well. Uh, ah. And in part, that's because it was billions of dollars invested, so they had to make sure uh, that they right. did it well. Uh, but one of uh, two of the key uh, elements of that particular research was, one, they put a very, very high standard of evidence to decide if they've actually detected Higgs boson. Uh, so rather than P less than 0.05, it was P less than 0.00005, right? So it's a very, wow. very uh, low uh, barrier saying that we found it, right? They want to be sure. So that was one feature. A second feature of that research was that there were two teams working independently uh, on the same problem. And so what they did was they built in replication. They built Mm. in the idea that we can't just rely on a single team, a single approach. We're going to look at this multiple ways and see if we get converging evidence uh, toward the conclusion. So that one was like a prototype of, wow, if we could just have a few billion dollars for each project, we'll be great. Right, that'll be fine. Science will be great, uh, but of course, it isn't like that. So there are reproducibility challenges across disciplines. We don't know if they are larger or smaller across different disciplines. There's some hints that there may be variation uh, in some disciplines having bigger challenges than others, and there's some hints to suggest that nope, these challenges are pretty universal. For example, the the challenge of getting positive, novel, clean results is for publishability is true, whatever your discipline. Uh, so there's there's still a lot of evidence to be gathered about whether there's meaningful variation across uh, different domains. It's so fascinating how even in these, you know, extremely heady, you know, technical uh, fields, there's still so many human incentives at play that that you'd want that a novel result would would mean so much even in you know I'm really struck by you know my uh, my sister is uh 
you know, now a, a science journalist at Science News. Uh, before that, she was a, a PhD student and she worked on, uh, you know, high energy physics projects. They were, uh, I believe, this is, if she ever hears this, she's going to be mad at my poor memory, but, you know, that they were, det- she, she was on a big neutrino detection project, one of these big, you know, international collaborations. She was traveling back and forth from Chicago to France, like setting up detectors, you know, um, uh, big, you know, they were a, a big thing of water that, you know, the neutrinos would hit and they would detect them, da da da. It was a big, big project, multi, you know, dozens of people on the team. And then uh, in the last year of it, she said, oh, this other project that was doing the same thing, they published their result before us. And now all we can do is replicate their result. And now we're we're all let down because we weren't, you know, first past the post on it. And, you know, and I got a little bit of an implication like, hey, for everyone who worked on on her project, that wasn't the best for their careers, that that now all they could do was replicate. Um, And that's such a human thing, right? That like from from the sciences perspective, from the from the uh, sort of alien, you know, uh, abstract perspective. Hey, well, that's that's great that, you know, you've got two projects. One is replicating the other. But you can't ignore the fact that for the the people involved, it's there's an incentive and a letdown there. Yeah, that that's exactly right. You know, and that, I think it comes down to the fact that scientists have things that they have to do to be scientists. Uh, they have to do something to show that they are competent so that they can have their job, that they get paid uh, to do this work. Uh, they have needs to show that they're good enough that other people should pay attention to their work, that that work should have impact. And those are very human, but it's imp- almost, you know, it's, it's very difficult to imagine it being anything but. Right. Of right. Just pure curiosity with infinite resources that we just get to do science because we want to do science. Um, and so the consequence of that is ex- exactly as you describe it, that uh, there is advantage to being first. There is advantage to finding something new. There is advantage for finding something that people thought was implausible uh, or unlikely because wow, that's amazing. You found cold fusion? That's amazing. Uh, and so all of those get sort of built into what is good for the scientist is not always what's good for science. Uh, and that is a key challenge that the dealing with the overall incentive structure needs to tackle. We won't ever get rid of the fact that someone who has an amazing new discovery will get famous for that amazing new discovery. Uh, that's that's a reasonable basis, right? People that have amazing insights will get rewarded for those amazing insights. But what we can do better as a discipline is provide reward and incentive for, for the replication, for high quality, high rigor uh, in your methodology, even if it turns out that that thing that we thought might be there wasn't there. Uh, and for good transparency of showing exactly how you got to your claims, right? So we can can have both. Uh, we can reward discovery and amazing new insights and appreciate scholars for high rigor and high transparency too. And so how do we how do we do that? I mean, is it just a matter of you know getting funding and awarding prizes for the best you know uh, reproducibility study uh, and making sure that it's good for people's careers because, hey, there's there's a lot of grants you can get to do that kind of work, or is there something more fundamental about the culture of science uh, and how science is done that needs to change? 
Yeah, so th- those certainly are good examples and would raise awareness of the value of, of openness and reproducibility. And, and certainly researchers appreciate the value of those things. What isn't hurt happening in the, in the incentives right now is researchers being rewarded for those things. And so it's very simple things could change, right? For if publication is my goal, then what we can change is what is required to get published. And rather than it being all about the results, part of getting published could be about the methodology. For example, journals could require that I make my data and materials available unless there's an ethical or commercial reason that I can't make the data publicly available so that others would be more easily able to reproduce my work. That simple change would have dramatic consequences on people's behavior because the reward is still needed. I still need to get published, but now what's aligned with getting published isn't just the results, it's also some of these other behaviors. Same thing for getting funding. Funders could require uh, data to be made available for the grants that they fund, for the materials, the process to be made available. So those would be very useful steps. The one that we have the, the most fun promoting here at the, the Center for Open Science uh, is called Registered Reports. And this is a publishing model uh, that shifts the incentives uh, just enough but fits into the existing system. So the standard process for publishing an article is that I do my experiments, I write them up, I have the final product, I have my findings, and I submit that to the journal. And the right. journal considers how exciting are the results and are the met- is the methodology good enough uh, for uh, us to consider. The registered reports model changes it slightly by saying, write up your methodology, tell us why the question you're asking is important, do the first part of the paper, but don't do the experiments yet. Send in the experiments that you have designed and how you're going to do them and, and you know, detailing the methodology. And we, as the editors of the journal, will evaluate and decide uh, whether that's important question and whether the methodology is uh, well designed huh. to test that question. And yeah. then we'll give you a commitment. We'll say, as long as you follow through with what you said you're going to do and you show that you did the experiment competently, we will publish it regardless of what the outcome is, because it's an important question. We need to know the answer. That simple change then makes it a results-blind review process, right? I'm not incentivized to get a positive result anymore. I'm incentivized to have the best methodology that I can and to show you exactly how I'm going to do it. And then if that meets threshold, then whatever's the outcome is the outcome. And I still get the reward. You still get the reward of the prestigious journal having published your uh, your piece. You, you don't need to uh, sweat over your data trying to uh, uh, hack your p-value in order to get something publishable. You already have the agreement to publish regardless of whether you get a positive result or a, or a null result. Right. That's exactly right. And so we have 79 different journals now have started to use this as a wow. as an option for them uh, for authors to submit papers as a registered report compared to the other model. And so what we're hoping to do, we've started a couple of initial projects now, uh, is actually evaluate. Does this approach provide value for improving reproducibility? And does it provide costs, right? So you can imagine some costs that doing this model might reduce creativity, might reduce the likelihood of finding something exciting. Uh, and so we, we need to evaluate all the potential consequences of different models 
uh, with the end goal being how can we make research as efficient as possible. So you're not just proposing this alternate model. You're actually doing research on whether or not the model is producing good results. Yeah, because the the end goal is not to have shared, like started new ways of doing things. The end goal is to make science more efficient, to make more progress on solutions and cures and knowledge with fewer dollars and as fast as possible. And so if any of our interventions uh, are not being effective, then why do them? <laughs> let's do something. Let's try something else, right? So this, uh, so evaluation is sort of core uh, to all of this. We need our own uh, interventions to be reproducible, not just uh, the work that's being done, uh, the substance work that's being done. Do you feel that any sort of sea change is brewing in the way that that science is done? Uh, because you know, so many of the times, so much of the time that we talk about you know, on our show, you know, hey, here's a big system of the way people do things. And guess what? The incentives are out of whack. So, you know, thing A happens when we really want thing B to be happening. That That's a very common sort of social problem in many parts of uh, human society. But a lot of the time it's like, well, you know, how are we going to change that? Like it's we've diagnosed the problem, but but wow, changing it is is really, really difficult. Um, but it strikes me that science is the field that is, you know, scientists in, in general out of habit and out of, you know, sort of uh, personality are, are the ones most likely to to when a problem is diagnosed, you know, and, and shown to them, take it seriously and perhaps change their behavior. Is this uh, sort of, you know, new meta scientific way of looking at the way science is done? Is that is it yielding dividends? Do you feel the culture changing? Do you do you think that you know these improvements uh, can take root in a in the broad way that they need to to improve the way science overall is done? Yeah, I think it is uh, making good progress, but there's a long way to go, and the barriers are are just aligned with what you described. Uh, that you know, changing a culture is hard. And these are deep-rooted. They're not just sort of convenience things. They are deep-rooted in the systems of how it is that scientists are rewarded and advanced uh, right. in their careers. And so the, that's a challenge. A second challenge is that science is entirely decentralized, right? We can't go to uh, Marsha McNutt, who is the president of the National Academy of Sciences, and say, please tell everybody now we are <laughs> going to share all our data and right. be done with it. That doesn't happen. She she is influential, but she does not have control uh, over all of scientists' behaviors. There are there are different stakeholders. There are the institutions that that employ scientists. There are the funders that give them resources. There are the journals that decide what gets published. There are societies that set the norms for their communities, and all of those are different uh, for every individual scientist. And so that decentralization is the biggest barrier to change. Uh, and the, you know, the experience of many scientists is exactly like you described. They say, we all, we all know what the problems are. Uh, we all know what the solutions are. We just are totally disempowered individually to change it. And so one of the major roles that we are trying to play at the Center for Open Science is the connecting role, is how do we solve a coordination problem because of decentralization? Well, let's get the, all the stakeholders aligned with common solutions get them working on common language, common solutions, common frameworks, so that we can shift the incentives across all of these different stakeholders in a sort of coordinated fashion uh, that will actually help produce change. 
and we, of course, are not the only ones uh, working on this. There are many groups across the scientific community uh, that are working on changing these norms. And that really is the biggest barrier. But the biggest benefit that we have right now is that there is lots of attention and lots of willingness uh, to change. Major stakeholders, funders, and societies and uh, journals are making efforts, are looking at how is it that they can play a role in improving reproducibility. And there's lots of communication happening across all of these different uh, stakeholders. And so that makes me very optimistic that we're going to be able to get this done. Right. And I mean, we did our episode on this topic because it had surfaced for us as, you know, uh, sort of dilettante, you know, liberal arts readers of what's going on in the science world. You know, I had heard these rumblings about the reproducibility crisis and everything like they've sort of, you know, the the idea is getting out there of there of there being a problem. Um let me just uh, move the topic to this. Uh, you know, we've been engaged in kind of a technical discussion of, you know, problems for, you know, scientists on the ground and what it's like for them, uh, you know, trying to do research. Um, how do you think this should change what the public thinks about science? And what do you think the public misunderstands the most about about how science is done? Yeah, so they... To me, the current uh, reproducibility crisis, as it is phrased sometimes, as we did opening the discussion, uh, should be something that gives the public confidence rather than concern about science. Uh, and that is because of a reason you just mentioned in our, the last part of our conversation, which is this notion of self-correction. Science is self-correcting uh, because... It is constantly skeptical of itself. This is the greatest strength of science is, is self-doubt, <laughs> uh, is yes. where are we wrong here? Where are we wrong here? Where are we wrong here? And that constant self-skepticism of questioning our own methodologies, our own approaches, our own findings, our own conclusions, is the way in which science roots out error and arrives at conclusions that are the most defensible conclusions that we could find. Uh, and so the fact that this meta-science has emerged to apply that self-skepticism, not just to the content of scientific discoveries, but the process of discovering, uh, is a very positive uh, step, I think, for um, the, the way in which science will be efficient and, and promote uh, new discoveries. We're, we're getting better, and we're going to get a lot better uh, in addition to the things that already are being contributed uh, by science. And so the related to that, you asked also of what is it that the public misunderstands the most. Um, and I don't know if it's actually a misunderstanding, but it is a common miscommunication in how we talk about scientific findings. And that is that there is a desire for definitiveness, and science rarely provides it. Ah. Most scientific discoveries, most papers, almost all, it may not be hyperbole to say all, provide a tentative conclusion, an initial huh. amount of evidence, right? And getting to definitiveness is a very slow march of that first finding that says coffee is good for you, that second finding that says coffee is bad for you, that third <laughs> finding that says, what is coffee anyway, right? I, you know, I know. The, so all of that is uh, going to occur, and it's not exactly contradictory. 
It's that figuring that out is hard. And so we need to study it a lot of times. We need to aggregate evidence. We need to find out where the exceptions are, what the boundary conditions are, where things don't quite fit. And over time, the conclusion emerges rather than any individual report, any individual finding being the end-all, be-all. I, I think I have to agree with that. So often, you know, the the thing that the thing that we try not to say on our show, but that you hear people say all the time is science says, you know, yes. uh, uh, science yeah. says X, science says Y. <laughs> Actually, we do occasionally say that on our show when we're being when we're you know when we're being a little bit flip about uh, right. you know something something that's been debunked and and oh sorry science says that's not true, um, but even even that is is uh, a, a bit of an oversimplification because it's true every paper ends with for the most part uh, we know to such and such a degree of certainty or that I mean that's that p value right that is what the p value represents is is how certain you are correct. Yeah, it's it's related to that for sure, and the, the sort of the measure of confidence and the number of times it's been repeated in slightly varying circumstances is another part that is an indicator of that confidence. So yeah, there it is. It is hard uh, to talk about scientific conclusion, and this is that this actually makes it is really hard because we say okay, so science is not definitive; it's uncertain. So this, that means we can't trust it. No, 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 no. That's not what it means. <laughs> what it means is we're, we're uncertain and everybody's uncertain. There isn't yes. better evidence. We just don't have enough evidence about that claim. And so how do we di- take advantage of scientific findings? Well, we have to take advantage of scientific findings knowing the degree of uncertainty that any individual finding has. This one we are pretty uncertain about, but we have to decide what our policy is going to be about uh, this particular uh the thing for you know the social good so let's use the science the best that we can and recognize the amount of uncertainty and build that in to our assumptions about the policy don't say science says and so we have to do it this way says (laughs) science has this evidence and so we'll try this and then we will iterate as the scientific evidence becomes more clear Right. And, and this, you know, this comes back to sort of what's a meta theme uh, that, that we talk about a lot, that um, you should have more confidence in a source of information if that source encapsulates uncertainty. If, you know, you can you, you can trust you should trust a newspaper based on the quality of their correction section. Um, yes. Yeah. And yeah. uh and that's why we do, you know, corrections on our show, because we try to, you know, let people know that we have that same self-critical look. Uh, but that's really taking a cue from, you know, science itself um, uh, looking. Yeah, because it's it's always sort of uh, it's always refining what it what it thought it knew. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that element of, of your show with the with the corrections about prior shows. And it makes me think of. What to me is my sort of my own diagnostic indicator of how much I take a, any given scientist seriously, and that is when when asked how could you be wrong, the scientists that I like the most that I think oh they they really got something are the ones that get totally excited and say oh my gosh well there's this and this and this that couldn't make me wrong and this and this and this we've been thinking about and I might be wrong here and might be wrong there right. They're actively uh, thinking about all of those things that could show how their current point of view is incorrect. 
The scientists that I get sort of like wary of are the ones who are offended uh, that you've asked, right? What do you mean, what if I'm wrong? I'm not wrong. I'm a scientist. Uh, <laughs> the, that's, that's ridiculous, right? Because it's all uncertain. And then the ones that I'm a little bit leery of are the ones that say, oh, how could I be wrong? That's so interesting. I never thought about that. Like, oh, no, come on. Come on, man. <laughs> no, no. I love that. I, I never I, I never thought of that uh, as as uh, just like a, a stance towards the world and the work that that different scientists could take. But it makes it makes total sense. And, and I relate to that because I, you know, uh, I, I love to me my whole, you know, the whole reason I do this show is I is, is that delight of finding out that you were wrong about something uh, that you had right. like it can be a very enjoyable an exciting feeling because it means that, oh, my God, there's so much more to learn out there. I thought I knew this, but I, I don't. Oh, there's so much more possibility in the world. The world has shifted under my feet in kind of an yeah. exciting way. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think this is if we could convert uh, and your show, I think, is doing a great job of it, convert people's um, belief that being right is the desired thing rather than the joy of discovery of error. Uh, that that would be such an amazing gain because the yeah. uh, the the real gain is is you know is sort of that humility of recognizing that my current beliefs about the world can't possibly be correct right I don't have complete understanding of how the world works so finding out which ones of them are wrong mean that I have a better understanding of the world today than I did yesterday right. that's amazing why shouldn't I be so <laughs> delighted in that uh, rather than feeling this ideological pull of I need the world to align with exactly what I believe about the world today. That is a corrosive, uh, corrosive thing. So so we should not be calling it the reproducibility crisis. We should be calling it, I don't know, the reproducibility opportunity or the reproducibility adventure is what it yeah. sounds like. <laughs> so some of my colleagues, Joe Yuri and Leif, wrote a paper that have call, termed it the reproducibility enlightenment. Uh, uh, just saying, look, this we've just sort of are recognizing that this is this is a world class opportunity here. This isn't a crisis. Oh, man, that what what a wonderful way to, to end this interview, because that makes me something that I was worried about. I now feel so positively about. Uh, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and and for your work bringing this to light. And uh, yeah, thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Adam, and I'm delighted uh, of the things that you're doing with the show, so appreciate you including me. Thank you once again to Brian for coming on the show. I hope you guys found that interview. What a nice arc that had. You start out all worried about science and you end up feeling so positive about the bright future science has ahead of it and why it's embrace of error makes it the most awesome field of human inquiry. Oh my God, I loved it so much. Hope you guys did too. And that is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about it and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or to comment wherever you subscribe. It helps us out a lot. And don't forget, Adam Ruins Everything airs every Tuesday night on True TV at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. You can also watch it on demand. You can get it on iTunes or Google, and you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. So why don't you do that while you wait around for the next podcast episode, which you'll have in two weeks. Until then, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.